Welcome to Power Principles, a podcast for people who are ready to get unstuck and move forward. I'm your host, Malia Warner. My goal is to provide you with the knowledge and power you need to elevate your life to the next level. This is episode 13, The Power of Naming. Today, I am talking about the power of naming. Have you ever had the feeling that something is wrong, but you just can't put your finger on it? There's something wrong with your child. There's something bothering your boss. There's something off in a relationship and you know it's there, but you don't know what it is. My sister has always said, I can handle any problem as long as I know what it is. She speaks truth. As humans, we are strong, intelligent, resourceful. Problem solving is our innate ability. We can handle pretty much anything that comes our way as long as we know what it is. It's the unknown stuff, the unidentified issues that get us. We feel powerless against the unknown. But the moment we're able to identify, to name what's bothering us, suddenly we have power to take action. This principle reminds me of the birth of my fifth baby. We were in the hospital. The contractions were coming fast and strong. The anesthesiologist was prepping his epidural needle. But something was wrong. I had done this childbirth thing four times before. I knew how to push a baby out. But something was different. My husband asked, what's wrong? And I couldn't figure it out. Suddenly, there was a lot of chaos and screaming out in the hallway, which has nothing to do with this story, except for the fact that both the doctor and my husband went out to the hall to see what the yelling was about, which should have given me a clue that I wasn't screaming loud enough. As they walked out, I realized the problem. I didn't have anything to push my feet against. There weren't any of those feet thingies at the end of the bed. The nurse had prepped the room, the anesthesiologist had set up his tray, the doctor had put on gloves, but no one had remembered to set up those things where you put your feet. The contractions were agonizing, but I knew if I just had something to press against that I could get through it. However, my brain had also left the room with the husband and the doctor, and I could not think what those feet thingies were called. I knew there was a special name for them, a funny word. I mean, a word that kind of made sense, but also had nothing to do with childbirth. I could think of all of these things about their name, but I couldn't remember what those darn feet thingies were called. Just when the anesthesiologist wanted to stick that two-foot needle into my spine, a monster contraction hit. I shouted, it's too late, no time for an epidural. I just need those feet thingies. Nobody had a clue what I was talking about. The baby was coming, but I had nothing to brace my feet against. I had no grounding. As a result, I could do nothing but thrash and flail and flip around on the bed like a fish on land. The doctor and my husband came back in and my brain must have come back with them because I suddenly remembered stirrups. I need stirrups. Will someone please put the stirrups up? My nurse moved everyone away from the foot of the bed, raised the stirrups, and guided my feet into their hold. Like magic, I was grounded. I could brace myself, bear down, and let the pushing party begin. And stirrups? What a stupid name. Who came up with that name? 
I know stirrups are the things on a saddle you put your feet into when you ride a horse, so it kind of makes sense because you put your feet in them, but seriously, there's no way you want to think about riding a horse when you're delivering a baby. All I know is that I felt helpless against those raging contractions until I had something to ground myself against, and I couldn't get my grounding until I figured out what those darn foot thingies were called. Stirrups. So today we're talking about the power of being able to name the things that vex us. Naming is a power principle. There is power in being able to identify something by its correct name. Why is naming so powerful? Scientists have studied the power that words have on our brains. And a name is nothing more than a word a combination of letters assigned to a specific person or thing. The human brain functions through the categorization of words and images. Your brain receives thousands of impulses of data every second, and its job is to decide which of that data is important to you, which is life essential, which is life threatening, and which is innocuous. Your brain classifies, characterizes, defines, and separates data in order to make its job a little easier. The brain has to lump things together, and it does this by identification and naming. If the brain can't label something, then that information goes into this abyss of uncategorized brain stuff. It's all in there floating around, but the brain is unable to process and problem solve, which is really frustrating because the brain is built to problem solve. And you know the feeling of what happens next. Life feels tossed to and fro like a ship with no anchor. You know something is wrong, but you can't get your footing. You don't know which way to fire. I think we all intuitively sense the power of names. And this naming power appears at times in literature. I want to reference here three examples from literature that demonstrate the power that results from calling things by their accurate name. The first example comes from the oldest written human story. We start in the beginning with the book of Genesis from the Old Testament. God gave Adam and Eve power to name the animals, and from the moment they chose the name elephant, their naming process demonstrated their dominion over the earth and its various forms of life. The authorization of their commission as stewards of the earth, as guardians of the garden, was given via this process of naming. There are many other examples in the Bible of the importance of names, stories of names being changed, of God bestowing new power, new offices, signified by a change of name, and a declaration to call such person by that new name. The second example comes from none other than a collection of folk stories gathered and written by the Brothers Grimm. This is the tale of Rumpelstiltskin. As a child, I had a small portable record player in a red and white box with a handle that buckled like a briefcase, and I toted that briefcase through my house as if I were Diana Prince herself on my way to the office to save the world. And once inside my office, I would set up my record player and my personal file collection of little golden books with 45 RPM vinyl records housed in pocket sleeves inside their back covers. 
Since we live in the miraculous age of the internet, I found a recording of the exact version of Rumpelstiltskin I used to listen to as a child. This is the story of Rumpelstiltskin. You can read along with me in your book. You'll know it is time to turn the page when you hear the gold coin ring, like this. Let's begin now. Once upon a time so very long ago, there lived a kindly miller and his beautiful daughter. The miller was very proud of his daughter's beauty, and every chance he got, he would tell everyone about her. As the story goes, the miller, who's tired of his poor life grinding grain into flour, yearns to be more than he is. So he brags to the young king that his daughter is the most beautiful, most talented girl in the land. The king asks, what is her talent? And the miller, speaking without thinking, spins a tale about his daughter's ability to spin straw into gold. The king is greedy, and the prospect of having a wife with both good looks and a connection to an endless source of gold coins is enticed. The king takes the miller and his daughter to the palace, where you know the rest of the story. She is locked in a room with only a pile of straw and a spinning wheel, and must turn the straw into gold or die in the morning. She is weeping over her father's foolishness when a strange little man appears. The first night, the odd man agrees to work in exchange for the girl's pearl necklace. Whirr, whirr. Right before the astonished girl's eyes, the straw was turned into bright gold coins. As the strange little fellow worked, he sang a song to the rhythm of the spinning wheel. The spinning wheel goes round and round, it hums and sings its spinning sound. My secret never will be told, I'll spin the wheat straw into gold. The second night, the little man works in exchange for the girl's treasured ring. And while he spins, he sings this cryptic song. If straw to gold you want to spin, I'll do it for you once again. But if you want this wheel to sing, then I must have your golden ring. The third night, the girl has nothing left to offer. But the peculiar man strikes a bargain. If he spins the straw to gold this third time, the king will marry her. And she will agree to give him their firstborn child. The little man jumped to the wheel and began spinning faster than ever. I see the king has asked for more their straw from ceiling to the floor. But if this last thing I would do, your firstborn, I will take from you. In the morning, the king is delighted to unlock the door and discover piles of gold from floor to ceiling. The miller is released from prison. His daughter becomes queen. One year later, she rejoices at the birth of hers and the king's first baby. Her rejoicing is interrupted by the appearance of the strange little man. <laughs> I'll take that babe, my queen. The queen wept and pleaded with the little man. She offered him bags of gold and jewelry, but he shook his head. No, a baby is far more precious than any of these things. But I will give you a chance. Tell me, within three days, what my name is. If you can guess right, you shall keep the baby 
and never see me again. The queen exerts great efforts before at last uncovering the little man's true name. The little man appeared, and the queen began to say more names to him. Harry and Parry? William Z. Morrissey? Or Pipplesnitz Hopewell Jones? But it was none of these, as the queen well knew. And the little man held out his arms for the baby. But the queen held her baby tightly. Wait now, little man. If those names are all wrong, then truly it must be Rumpelstiltskin. Oh, how angry that little man was. Someone told you! Someone told you! He screamed and he groaned and he tore at his hair and he pulled at his beard and he started to stamp his feet. And do you know, he stamped so hard he stamped himself right through the floor. And he has not been seen again from that day to this. And the moral of this story is that a strange man had power over the queen. He would steal her child and she was helpless to stop him until she could successfully name him. And once she could call him by his real name, he had no more power over her. And of course, we know the ending. And so the king and the queen and their little daughter, and of course the miller too, all lived happily ever after. Our third example from literature comes from the author Neil Gaiman's book, The Ocean at the End of the Lane. In this story, a small town is inflicted by a mysterious creature who wreaks all sorts of mischief and havoc on the citizens and threatens to destroy this boy's family and take his life. The boy meets a family of three generations of women, the Hemstocks, who seem to have old wisdom and magical power over evil creatures. Yes, I have a treat. I found a recording of Neil Gaiman reading from Ocean at the End of the Lane. And if you get nothing else out of this podcast, you will have had 30 seconds of ear candy listening to Neil Gaiman's voice, his accent, and his marvelously colorful literary language. Ladies and gentlemen, for your listening pleasure, Neil Gaiman reading from Ocean at the End of the Lane. You're welcome. It begins with old Mrs. Hempstock. She took the shilling from Letty. She squinted at it sniffed it, rubbed at it, listened to it, or put it to her ear at any rate, then touched it with the tip of her purple tongue. It's new, she said at last. It says 1912 on it, but it didn't exist yesterday. Letty said, I knew there was something funny about it. I looked up at old Mrs. Hempstock. How do you know? Good question, lovey. It's electron decay, mostly. You have to look at things closely to see the electrons. They're the little dinky ones that look like tiny smiles. <laughs> the neutrons are the gray ones that look like frowns. The electrons were all a little bit too smiley for 1912. So then I checked the sides of the letters and the old king's head, and everything was a tad too crisp and sharp. Even where they were worn, it was as if they'd been made to be worn. You must have very good eyesight, I told her. I was impressed. She gave me back the coin. 
Not as good as once it was, but then when you get to be my age, your eyesight won't be as sharp as it once was neither. How old is that? Old enough, she said. I remember when the moon was made. Most authors don't do well recording their own audiobooks, but Neil Gaiman is the exception. If you want a great audiobook for your summer road trips, the Neil Gaiman audio collection of short stories for children is marvelous. The stories include Wolves in the Wall, Crazy Hair, I Traded My Dad for Two Goldfish. I think he has a second collection that includes Fortunately the Milk and other stories. Also, the longer middle grade novel, The Graveyard Book, is a wonderful listen on a road trip. Okay, enough with the Neil Gaiman worship. Back to the story. So Letty and the boy go hunting to find this creature and send it back where it came from. At the pond, which Letty calls her ocean, they find a tent-like form with a ragged face and eyes that were deep holes in the fabric. Letty said, Name yourself. The thing said, I am the lady of this place. I have been here for such a long time, since before the little people sacrificed each other on the rocks. My name is my own child, not yours. Now leave me be before I blow you all away. Letty said, Asked you to name yourself, I did. I ain't heard more in empty boasts of age and time. Now you tell me your name, and I ain't asking you a third time. No, whispered the gray thing flatly. Little girl, little girl, who's your friend? The gray thing grew huge and blustery. Letty said, if you ain't telling me your name, I'll bind you as a nameless thing, and you'll still be bound and tied and sealed like a poulter or a shuck. The gray thing came at them, and the boy let go of Letty's hand to block it, and caught a mass of cobwebs and rotting cloth, and a stabbing pain shot through the sole of his foot. A few days later, the boy pulls a worm with tweezers out of a hole in his foot and puts it down the bathtub drain. The very next morning, a new nanny appears, a buxom woman named Ursula Monkton. And as you can imagine, all sorts of trouble ensues. The Hemstock women are unsuccessful at ridding the earth of this worm until Letty is able to discover the creature's real name. Letty trapped the gray thing in the boy's bedroom and called out its name. Scarhatch of the Keep. I'm not scared, said Ursula Monkton. She sounded scared. How did you know my name? Went looking for it this morning. The boy said, you aren't scared of her? Letty said, I can't be scared of her. She's a flea, all puffed up with pride and power and lust. Like a flea bloated with blood. But she couldn't hurt me. I've seen dozens like her in my time. And I know her name. Of course, Ursula Monkton wasn't her real name. But until they identified her correct name, Letty and the boy and the Hemstock women were powerless against her. Now, calling the creature by its correct name, Scarthatch of the Keep, they chase the creature to the end of the lane where just before the ocean it cries powerlessly, shrinks, and disappears. And of course, I'm not going to ruin the ending by revealing the twist. I don't have Neil Gaiman's reading voice, but I love this story and his example of the power of being able to banish a troublesome thing by naming it. Naming is a power principle because it enables our brain to categorize a problem and begin literally brainstorming ways to solve it. 
It's like moving an unacknowledged issue into a top priority brain folder. Have you ever wondered why sometimes the best way to solve a problem is to talk to somebody about it? When my husband asks, is there anything I can do to help you? My answer very often is, I need you to listen to me talk out loud so I can figure this out. Because talking helps us take the puzzling, uncategorized data flowing in the dark abyss of unfiled brain info and put it into words, which allows the brain to file it and solve it. It makes sense why talking with therapists, coaches, doctors, mentors, or church leaders can be beneficial. They give us the words to name our ambiguous concerns. Once we have the word, our brain can get to work. While struggling to heal from postpartum depression and chronic illness, I met regularly with a counselor. I remember vividly the day he said, you are codependent on your husband. This came as a big surprise to me because I believed I was a fiercely independent woman. When he explained that codependent meant that I relied on his approval for my sense of worth and identity, the proverbial light bulb went on. All of the heartaching about him not noticing that I dusted the mop boards that day or bought new dish rags suddenly made sense. I could understand why he walked on eggshells around me, always hesitant and nervous that something he would say or do, or something that he didn't say or didn't do, would set off an explosive reaction in me. Being able to sum up all the emotion, the confusion, the toe-stepping around each other, being able to put all that into one word, codependent, felt like it instantly released its hold on me. Now, of course, it wasn't that simple but I did feel an immediate relief. Another powerful aspect of naming is being able to name our emotions. While my sister helped her son move into his apartment to start his first semester of college, she stayed at my house. One morning we were doing yoga and talking about emotions and she said, so do you think we're supposed to let ourselves feel our emotions? And I said, I think so. She said, this whole morning, all I have wanted to do is cry. I think I'm emotional that T is moving to college, but I didn't want to be a bawling mess all over your house, so I've stopped myself from crying. Then I just started feeling mad about it. I've driven 12 hours in a truck and hauled all his stuff and bought all this new stuff and set up his apartment and he didn't even say thank you and he acts like he doesn't care that I'm here or that he's going to miss me. If he's not going to appreciate everything I do for him, I am going back to his apartment and returning everything to the store and he can figure it out for himself. And I said, it's okay to be sad. It's good to be sad that your son is going to college. The sadness means that you've been a good mom. Tears pooled in her eyes and she let them stay. I could see her shoulders relax. She let out a deep sigh and said, I feel so much better. There was power in naming her emotion as sadness. And magically, once she acknowledged and named the feeling, she wasn't sad anymore. She felt the sadness for a few brief seconds, and then it was gone, and I could see her relief. We aren't very good at this, at stopping and identifying our emotions. We don't like to get messy and emotional in front of people. 
We don't have time to cry. So we stuff the emotion back into the black nameless abyss in the brain and plow forward with our day. But our emotions are messengers. And if we don't hear their message the first time, then they turn into bigger, louder, uglier emotions. Sadness turns to anger, then to resentment and frustration until you're ready to go back to that college dorm and take back all your ungrateful son's stuff. So there. Here's the invitation. Become a neutral observer. When something comes up that feels not right, but you can't put a finger on it, stop and take note. Examine the situation. Do some skilled detective work. Talk it out. Use words. You don't have to suffer with a worm in your foot. You don't have to surrender your firstborn child. You can unlock your power over that ambiguous pest by discovering and calling it by its name. This is Malia Warner. Thank you for joining me. And here's the teaser. This entire episode has simply been preparation for a deeper topic next week. It's going to make you think. It's going to make you go, hmm, interesting. So get your brains ready. Buckle up. I'll meet you back here next Monday. Have a powerful week banishing troubles by calling them by their right name. Until next week, my friends.